welcome to the Red Pill Training Podcast. We are back with Season 3 with myself, James Jowsey, Phil Mansfield and Gemma Chambers. Hello and welcome to this special edition of the Red Pill Podcast. Um, we're incredibly excited today. We have a, a different team in front of us. We have uh, our Doctors Podcast which is with Caris and Kerry. Both are working doctors and coaching or being athletes in and around the, the CrossFit community. Um, both are fortunately heavy red pill, one athlete, one red pill coach. So um, guys, uh, welcome to the podcast. Welcome, Caris. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. Could, Caris, could you just um, tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do and, and what your background is? Uh, yeah, so uh, my name's Karis. I am a qualified doctor, so currently working in intensive care um, in East London, and I also compete in CrossFit, so a couple of sanctionals this year, uh, one last year, and then see where we go from there. And uh, Kerry, can you just introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your your background, please? Hi, so I'm a rheumatologist, so basically I treat a mix of musculoskeletal conditions and then sort of other uh, systemic autoimmune and inflammatory diseases as well. A lot of what I treat is musculoskeletal pain, so anything from soft tissue problems to degenerative arthritis and then sports-related injuries as well. Uh, I took some time out a few years ago and we lived in Canada. Uh, I did my level one CrossFit when I was there and started coaching at a gym. And I think since I've come home, I've been trying to think of a way to put it all together and did the mentorship with you guys last year. And here we are. You did the mentorship last year. How did you find the mentorship? Interesting. <laughs> it's definitely a new perspective, um, a different way of looking at things. Yeah, but it was good. So obviously, um, I think everybody listening knows the demands of being a doctor, particularly um, in this current climate with, I guess you guys are, are reasonably busy and I've had a lot to do the last many months. Um, Carrie, so we start with you from a training perspective. How is it just a question of good time management um, or how do you combine uh, being a sort of a, a doctor and being what we what we would classify as an elite athlete and and it, sort of how, how do you keep the motivation up for, for both uh, quite demanding jobs? Uh, yeah, so up until about this time last year, I think I was uh, working full time um, in anaesthetics and training kind of when I could around it. So evenings, weekends, uh, days off. And then, um, yeah, like August last year, I came to a point in my specialty training where it was a good um, kind of natural break before I applied for the next uh, like stage of training. So I decided to take some time out and see how I could get on in CrossFit. Um, so now at the moment I'm working generally two long days a week. So like about 26 hours a week, a um, bit more during peak COVID, um, obviously, because I work in intensive care. So we were pretty busy, as you say. Um, and yeah, and so I train around that. So train double sessions, the kind of other five days a week, I take the... So the days that I'm at work, I don't train. I take those as my rest days. So um, then I can kind of hit training hard the other five days. And that seems to work quite well for me at the moment. So working those long days 
that, that you're working there. Do you find that that uh, sort of almost mentally, um, I'd imagine it's more a sort of mentally draining job than a physically draining job, not to say you're not busy sort of physically, but when you're as fit as you are, I guess physically it's not tough. How, how is it easy just to switch off from, for want of a better way of saying it, the terrors of, <laughs> of, of intensive care to just walk in the next day and be able to train or is it your release or, or how do you sort of, manage that mental process and fatigue or tired or mental tiredness uh, so I think it's quite nice that they're uh they're like completely opposite things um so when I'm at work like if I start talking about CrossFit nobody has any idea what they're talking what I'm talking about they think I'm talking about like the cross trainer or something so you kind of completely turn off from that world and then when I go into the CrossFit gym it's completely a different environment so I can just turn off and not really think about work and especially during um like March April when it was really stressful and you were kind of thinking about um work all the time it was really nice to be able to obviously go into my garden rather than going to the gym um and train and just have that time to turn your brain off and not think about that I think it works for me as like a I guess probably a stress release and a, a nice balance so you're able to just what we say, just flip the switch, essentially, just walk into work and be 100% professional, and then walk out of work and, and be able to train and and concentrate on, on your training. Um, I think you say it very nonchalantly, Lisa, like that's uh, an easy thing to do. But I would imagine I don't know what you think, Kerry, from the coaching standpoint. Um, obviously, you dealing with the similar stresses that Carrie does and that's not just as easy as switching off from, for most people I think it's quite a, a unique talent wouldn't you say? I think it's probably something that doctors are quite good at um you sort of get conditioned to dealing with a, a stressful job um you can't take it home with you all the time um and to to have your life and um to be able to cope outside of work I think you just develop that capacity to be able to, to switch off and um, just concentrate on what you're doing um would you agree with that Karis that it's sort of something you guys are trained to do or or trained or accustomed to or as part of your training it's sort of was that common amongst majority of doctors oh interestingly you can answer that how many other doctors are training so I think it is um I think it's probably quite a common uh, like Kerry said I think people get quite used to it because otherwise if you were at work and then you took that home from work I think you'd go a bit mad if you were just thinking about that all the time um so I think you probably do have to develop some kind of coping technique whether that's going to the gym or seeing your friends or whatever it is I think you do need something outside of work in order to be able to cope with it um and I think whilst you're at work it's helpful to talk about it um because I think if you're with other doctors they understand what you're talking about and they kind of, if you talk about the fact that you had a really horrific day, they'll understand. But then if you go home and start talking about it there, I think it, it brings it into other aspects of life, which I think is probably not that healthy. Um, I think you need that separation to be able to turn off. So I think I'm quite lucky that I found CrossFit as something that I could do, which I can just turn off and not think about it at all because it it gives you that time. Um, in terms of other doctors training, I think anaesthetists are probably the most um, like active, I guess, outside work. I think most anaesthetists seem to either cycle, triathlon, run, not very many do CrossFit that I've come across, but um, definitely are involved in sport in some way. Um, I don't know if that's just because 
it's a specialty with a good work-life balance where people actually have time to go and do another sport but um I think it probably varies depending on what your specialty is as to how much spare time you have I think um I think you of course you do because it's a natural thing for you but I think it's for the for the, for the listeners out there I think that that caring carries their sort of underplay how difficult it is to be able to switch off from from such a stressful job and I think the I think what's what's interesting is people who are good at things don't often know why they're good at things. Um, and you guys are very good at having your stressful job and then being able just to switch off and go straight into CrossFit. But I think for a lot of people out there, maybe we should um, uh, in another podcast come into come in a little bit more detail there as to exactly how do we get to that process because you guys must have been through some kind of training process, some kind of learning process. I can't imagine as a sprightly 21 year old being if you were thrown into intensive care and then after training the next day you wouldn't be able to bring that home with you and I think those coping mechanisms and those coping strategies there's probably quite a lot to learn for for the listeners who I don't think we should ever compare stress uh, everybody experiences stress in their own in their own ways um, but for some people just getting out the door in the morning is as much stress as you guys experience in in in, a, in, a, in intensive care or, or in your in your general jobs and, and your strategies for for being able to switch off and go in and, and do your sports or coach your sports is is something that I think a lot of people could is inspiring for a lot of people. Um, so there's something maybe we should have a think about for another podcast is how we actually dial down and maybe tap into you guys and find out a little bit what processes you actually went through to be able to get to that point because it's it's quite a long way down the line. Um, Kerry, I'm going to just jump into you here. We we hear a lot of bit, a lot of the moment about uh, the obesity pandemic, uh, another pandemic that that, that we, we we're talking about. But the the obesity pandemic and that that CrossFit's role within the obesity pandemic. I think CrossFit Health themselves are are trying very hard to make an influence and help the obesity uh, pandemic. How do you see, um, as, as a sort of doctor that, that daily is treating the musculoskeletal issues of obese patients, how do you see the role of CrossFit and how can CrossFit be used to sort of ease the burden on the health system? Yeah, so... <laughs> you know, I, I, I totally am behind what CrossFit are trying to do. Um, they, like they have a really valid point. Um, obesity is a, is a massive problem in the UK. So if, if you look at the data, we have 30% of adults in the UK are, are obese and another 35% of them are overweight. So that gives us nearly two thirds of adults in the UK or in, in England who are overweight. Um, so many people are living with diabetes and other chronic diseases as a result of that as well. Um, I, I, I tried to have a look through the data to see um, just the, the role of exercise, I suppose, in this. Um, when it comes to CrossFit, they do make a lot of big claims in their level one um, about the exact role of CrossFit and the data and things that they have. But actually, when you try and look into the data specifically for CrossFit, there's not a lot of evidence there. There's not a lot of big studies. Any studies that are CrossFit specific are all quite small. Um, we do know that exercise is really important. Um, to reduce sort of chronic inflammation. Does it actually have to be CrossFit? Um, so there's three big reviews over the last couple of years looking at the management of obesity um, and the role of exercise in that. 
physical activity is an essential component to manage obesity and we know that diet and exercise are going to work better together but most of these studies have shown that the type of physical activity whether that's aerobic resistance high or low intensity doesn't really seem to affect the overall weight loss um, as intensive exercise maybe less time consuming it might be better suited to some people and that seems to be the common theme of all the reviews and things that I've been looking at. Um, I think as far as CrossFit goes, it will work if you take a group of overweight sedentary people and make them do CrossFit, which is pretty much throwing everything at them. Of course, they're going to see benefits. I don't think these benefits are limited to CrossFit. You will see benefits with any exercise regimen. I, I love CrossFit. I'm going to keep doing it pretty badly, but um, I am going to keep going. But I think that's the point that everyone should be aiming to do something that they enjoy. So if they love CrossFit, go for it. If they want to walk, Zumba or play football, that's all absolutely fine. We should all be as physically active as possible. And if it's fun, um, it's so much easier for people to stick with it. So I think really, if you like CrossFit, do it. If not, do something else. But as long as you're doing something, I think that's the main point. Um, Karis, would, would you, <clears throat> obviously you're the, you're the hooked CrossFitter. Yeah, uh, Kerry and I, we're, we're the coaches, if you like. So you're the sort of hooked CrossFitter. Um, would you say the same? Would you say there's a difference between uh, CrossFit and fitness? Um, why would why would, obviously you've chosen um, you've chosen to do CrossFit as your sport? Um, so why have you chosen CrossFit? And and is there is there any power in the reason that you've chosen CrossFit uh, in what Kerry's saying or? Or is it more a psychological thing where it's just about what you enjoy most is what you should do? Yeah, I think I would agree with Kerry. I don't think it really matters um, what sport you do as long as you do something. Um, I mean, for me, I fell in love with CrossFit because, I don't know, the class atmosphere, the challenge, the stuff that, you know, you found all this stuff that you couldn't do. And then if you work hard at it, you can do it. Um, and that. I guess wasn't something that I'd found in other sports particularly. Um, so that was what made me fall in love with it. But I don't think um, that necessarily means that everyone has to do it. It's good in some ways that it has such a different combination of things. So it has the aerobic side, it has the strength training side, which um, kind of in together means that uh, you get both both of those things which um, are important in weight loss and health. Um, but I, like Kerry said, if you love football, if you love Zumba, then that's what you're going to stick at. There's no point in forcing people to do something that they're not enjoying because they're not going to keep doing it. So I think people need to find what they love. And if that's CrossFit, then that's great. But if it's not, if it's something else, then do that. And um, you're way more likely to get better results that way, I think. So we sort of agree that exercise is the key, uh, is the key to, is the key to sort of the obesity pandemic. It doesn't necessarily need to be CrossFit. It can be anything. I think one thing, um, one thing I feel, feel with CrossFit from is as a typical, uh, male, uh, I love just to, just to have fun, if you know what I mean. And I like, I like it to be competitive and sporty. It doesn't need to be competitive against other people. It's it's just necessarily that it's competitive for myself. Uh, and being an, being an adult um, who has never walked on my hands, just being able, not that I'm, <laughs> it's getting there slowly, but just being able to walk on your hands, for me, it just feels like play. Um, and, for, for me, that's the where the focus around CrossFit could be or should be is that you actually 
um, if I was good, if, if I needed to get fit, I would go and play football, for example, or I would go and play a sport. And you can, I think the great thing with CrossFit is you can play CrossFit at, at, as at any level. Whereas if I'm a footballer, you know, I end up in goal because I'm not as good as the guys out on the field. So I end up not necessarily getting much of exercise. Yes, I get social um, interaction out of it. But I think with CrossFit is that just, if I say just, but having a role to be able to do a rope climb, like having a goal just to be able to get up a rope or or jump up onto a box that is 24 inches high or things like that, you can quickly find very small things to, to you guys or to us guys seem small but to the general public could be actually huge you know seeing someone get a first rope climb or do their first chest bar or something like that you can find play within crossfit in all areas and i think that could be the sort of psychological power of it um whereas you, you can quickly build success um and i think you you alluded to that there um Karis, that you felt success quite quickly with CrossFit that then you learned a new skill and then you learned something else and something else to do. And I think that's a really, really important, important point. And I think from a, Kerry, bring you in from the coaching side here, from a, from a goal setting perspective, <coughs> CrossFit opens up for, for, for me, opens up many opportunities to goal set for people to keep them successful. As long as we set, the, the right goals within CrossFit. Ra, you know, I love to run. I'm a runner, but going going for a run can be demotivating. Running alone, having that class environment and goal setting in that class environment can be quite powerful. Um, have you got any comments there? Or anything you think? Your any thoughts there with the sort of goal setting side of things? Yeah, like it is great whenever you you see the progress with people. So they come in for their first class and they can barely front squat, and then you know, a few months down the line, they're able to <clears throat> sort of overhead squat and start to snatch and things. So yeah, giving them goals is a great way to keep them coming back. And then it's the environment as well. Um, you have everyone supporting you, everyone cheering for you. And I think that just helps to keep people going then as well. Um, so yeah, goal setting and then just that sort of camaraderie, I think helps. Was that was that something for you in the start, Karis, when you started doing CrossFit? I mean, how, how, I mean, how good were you when you started doing CrossFit? What could, when your first time you ever walked into a CrossFit box, what couldn't you do? Um, it's probably a better question. Uh, yeah. So, uh, when I first started CrossFit, I had been playing netball and that was, um, and like kind of going to the gym and doing like hit classes. So that had been all I'd been doing before. Um, so I couldn't, I couldn't do a pull up, um, had never, picked up a barbell um so yeah completely started from scratch so I think it's really exciting like you know you start off getting your first pull-up and then you can do two and then you see someone doing a bar muscle-up and you have never seen that before and you don't even know what it is so I think the the like progression of it is definitely something that um keeps people coming back and keeps you excited and means that you can you know you've three years later and you've still got goals to achieve five years later you've still got goals to achieve um i definitely think that's part of what what makes people keep coming back to it so first time you walked into uh, a box could you did you have what good did you could you do a pull-up no so i went to my <laughs> cool. um yeah yeah i went to crossfit hammersmith and um had like an intro class went through squats and um burpees and everything and then pull-ups at the end I thought maybe I could try one couldn't do one 
Um, I think it took me maybe about three months of CrossFit before I got my first strict pull up. So, yeah. Um, and what year was that? What year was that? That would be, it was just at the end of 2015 I started. So early 2016, I got my first pull up. And within three years, you were top 10 at a sanctional. That's pretty good going, mate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's quite good, isn't it? <laughs> um, so, so moving on to a little bit more technic- technical stuff now. I mean, we're, we're talking about CrossFit. I mean, we, we agree the, the psychological benefits on obesity of just going out and training and doing everything else. But let's just, let's just assume that we're going to talk only CrossFit now. Do you guys feel the need or does, does CrossFit have a greater responsibility to be funding and producing research and setting up schemes, working with hospitals, sending coaches into hospitals potentially. How how or what options does if you were sitting with uh, CrossFit's budget and you were sitting in charge of CrossFit as a doctor, what would you be doing to uh, and now I'm not talking about selling CrossFit places, I'm talking about helping obesity. So it's not from a business perspective, it's more from a how do we help the, the obesity pandemic. What would you be doing? Would you be trying to prove this? Would you be trying to set up exercise referral schemes? It's a general brainstorm. What would you do if you were given the reins? Um, we'll, we'll start with you, Karis. Uh, yeah, so I think um, from an evidence point of view, CrossFit is so new that there is very little evidence for anything in it, um, particularly like training programs, that kind of thing, because also because it's so varied. Um, I think it's very difficult to, uh, because you only want to be able to change one thing and keep everything else the same in order to get uh, good evidence for something, uh, because there's so many facets of CrossFit, I think it's quite difficult to get um, good quality evidence. Um, so I think in order to achieve that, it's going to take a lot of work, but I think it's really important um, if uh, we do want to use CrossFit as a kind of um, like a health promotion tool, uh, you do need the evidence behind it in order to get the government or whoever um to fund it you can't just say oh I think this really works you have to actually show evidence that it works so um I do think that that's a really important um thing that we need to get more evidence that it does actually help with um obesity and that it's a long-term solution um in terms of how to implement it I think um more in the US than in the UK, there's there are like hospitals with CrossFit gyms and workplaces with CrossFit gyms, um, and I think that's a, a really good model for um, how it could be introduced. Um, I think in the UK, there's not very many workplaces that in, um, kind of incorporate it that include um, health promotion in their. Um, kind of set up so I know in like Scandinavian countries um they have like an hour allocated at lunchtime where you have to go and do some exercise whether it's yoga or or whatever um and in big tech companies like Apple and stuff like that they have gyms and, and stuff on um on campus but I think uh that would be a really good way of um introducing sport and exercise um you know, if you actually have a, an allocated time during your workday to go and do that. 
Um, in hospitals, I think it might be a little bit more difficult. Um, I guess maybe like rehab centers would be more appropriate. Like if people have had, um, you know, strokes or neurological issues or things like that. And then they say so once they're fit enough to be discharged from hospital, they then may go to a uh, rehab center. Um, that kind of setting might be a more appropriate place rather than like an acute hospital. I don't know. I'm not sure what the role would be there, um, but that would definitely be something that would um, be interesting because in the rehab centres is where, you know, you have the physiotherapists, you have the occupational therapists who are working with the patients to get back to kind of normal life. Um, and if we can introduce exercise at that point, then that's a good stepping stone for afterwards, I think. Kerry, do you have any uh, thoughts on that? Yeah, um, so actually, I think CrossFit had started paying for doctors to do their level one. Um, and they've sort of put a lot of emphasis on trying to educate doctors about CrossFit. And in that, you know, they'll cover sort of healthy lifestyle, diet and that kind of thing as well. And Kairos mentioned earlier that the people she works with do seem to be quite fit. But from my experience, doctors are not necessarily the healthiest bunch of people. Um, certainly a lot of people I work with don't do enough um, and think that I am a little bit crazy for the amount that I do as well. Our entire healthcare system is really designed to be reactive to problems rather than proactive. I have done so many clinics and different specialties over the years. Like I've spent six months um, in endocrinology with diabetes. The doctor's role is still primarily to prescribe medication. We don't spend enough time with patients, educating them and helping them to make lifestyle changes. And these lifestyle changes are the thing that's really going to matter when it comes to reversing their disease. When it comes to exercise, I would say that most doctors are not happy to prescribe exercise. They have no idea how to go about it and they're more scared of doing harm. We really need to get that point across that there's very few conditions where the risks of exercise will outweigh any benefits. So like that's what CrossFit were doing. And I think that would be great if we could bring that out um, a bit more just to help us move beyond this sort of pharmacological and drug approach to managing chronic disease. We need to help people to make or to take ownership and responsibility for their own health. And as healthcare professionals, we should be well enough educated to help them do that. Completely agree, Kerry. Uh, great points uh, for both of you. So, so let's carry on down that line then. What needs to change? So, to we've obviously Kerry there sort of alluded to the end goal, which would be, which would be we are prescribing exercise in hospitals as a solution um, instead of a medicinal solution. It was a, a sort of practical solution. Where we are now, point A to point B. What needs to happen, or what processes do we need to say? We, as if it's as if I have anything to do with it. But what processes do we, as a society or as a governmental society, need to go through to end there, where doctors are? For use your example of diabetic patients, where doctors are thinking, a diabetic patient, I will use exercise as one of my one of my sort of pres prescriptions here. Where where do we need to go? Let's uh, let's let's start with you, Karis. Um, what, where do we need to go for for that to be a reality? Um, so I think the focus there should, would probably have to be primary care, so GPs. Um, and I think we would need to educate GPs on, like Kerry was saying, educate GPs on how to um, prescribe exercise. Because um, like I know during medical school, I didn't have any 
that like there was nothing about um, exercises, medicine or anything like that. There was no, I think we got like basic metabolism teaching, but there was nothing about, there's no nutrition teaching, um, you know, what makes a healthy diet, how to advise someone not with diabetes on how to change their diet. There's very little information like that. So I think um, bringing nutrition education into medical school is uh really really important um and i don't yeah like i said i don't think it's done um and then i think training gps in how to prescribe exercise um so yeah whether it be through nationwide courses that gps can attend or whether it's a kind of mandatory part of their specialty training um but it would mean that um they could then go ahead and because uh, they're the ones who are seeing the patients, you know, they see their diabetes patients once a month or every couple of weeks. And then they would be able to um, follow up with them, check if there's any problems, if they need to change anything. Um, and they're going to have much more opportunity to see their patients face to face and follow up with that rather than um, them getting down the line to where they're in hospital with their diabetes um, it's much more of a pre preventative um, approach rather than just treating the problem once it's already there. Yeah, I think you need to take it back to medical school and undergraduate and start the education at that time. I don't remember doing any nutrition or anything about sports and exercise really the whole way through my training. It definitely wasn't emphasised. Um, so I think incorporating it at that stage um, is key. Um, and then as Kyra says, primary care is going to have to be a focus as well. So GP has the first port of um, point of contact with all of the patients. Um, so giving GPs um, and other doctors just that confidence in prescribing exercise um, will be really key at that stage then, yeah. Could either of you sort of imagine a situation whereby, you know, we have a... <clears throat> Doctors is, is sort of highly specialised uh, roles in terms of you specialise in in your areas, orthopaedics. You, you know, you break a bone, you go and see an orthopaedic surgeon. Could you guys ever foresee a situation where a speciality within the health system is an exercise physiologist, for example, and that you turn clients from, instead of a personal trainer calling them clients, to call them patients, and actually it was the, the role of the doctor? Because I think when I hear... When I hear GPs, it starts at primary care with GPs. The first thing I think of is waiting list and times. And I think I know how long it takes for one of us to prescribe a training program to a diabetic uh, patient. I don't know or I'm not sure where the GPs would, would potentially find the time for that. And I know there's been the exercise referral schemes um, where specially educated personal trainers have been been linked with uh, GP GP practices. However, what we found is the trust of the doctor on the exercise professional, rightly or wrongly so, has been lacking. Um, I think that it's difficult for the medical world to give credence to the fitness world when courses are two, three, four days long or three, four weeks long where you guys are doing nine years <laughs> uh, studying there. So is there potential there for, for coming out of medical school to have a speciality in, okay, I'm going to work with the prescription of exercise and actually be have referred directly from the from the GP practice to to guys like yourselves within hospitals or am I just, is that fantasy thinking or, or, or what we're thinking there, guys? Uh, Kerry, what do you think? 
Sports and exercise medicine is a growing field. Um, so I know it has been up and running in mainland UK for the last few years. Um, and in Ireland, they have just really got this up and going. So there is now a specialised like registrar training program. So if you do your foundation years, you can actually specialise in sports and exercise medicine. And yes, while a lot of that is going to be focused towards maybe the higher end athletes managing um, sort of athletic performance and sports injuries, a lot of that is supposed to be focused sort of at the grassroots level as well to just try and promote exercise to the masses so exercise for everyone um so it is coming um it is just going to be a long process and there's not a lot of trainees in it but i think over the next few years that will start to to grow karis do you have anything to add there um yeah so i'm actually about to start my master's in sports and exercise medicine um with so and like Kerry was saying is a um a kind of specialty with it within its own right now. Um, I think it is probably focused towards um, kind of elite sport performance at the moment, but definitely there are. So um, one of the modules in the masters is exercise medicine and physical activity promotion. So there is that um, kind of inclusion in there. Um, so I think kind of probably the, the goals of the specialty are to kind of bridge the gap between the two so have that um kind of elite performance side but then also use that um knowledge to promote health and um exercise nutrition to the general public and to kind of help public health england with uh that side of things um i know obviously at the moment um boris has just introduced this um new nutrition strategy for patients with diabetes so i think covid has had some positive um kind of impact in the fight on obesity um i think it's kind of woken people up to how big an issue obesity is in this country um so hopefully that in kind of combination will uh start things going in the right direction we're making steps in we're making steps in having exercise as a as a role within within the obesity pandemic, and uh, it's really interesting to get your guys who are sort of working on the front line with this every day your your feelings and and just as a as a general general question, how well known is CrossFit within within the hospitals? So so I think when you if you listen to the popular press from CrossFit HQ, it's almost sort of like everybody in the world knows what CrossFit is and we're making huge inroads into hospitals. But I think my experience is that it's perhaps slightly different that how many of your colleagues have even heard of CrossFit or how many of your patients have even heard of CrossFit is, is it, is it as big as we're sort of led to believe, or is there still a lot of work to be done? No, um, definitely. I don't think CrossFit is as, as, as well known as they would like it to be. Most of my colleagues have absolutely no idea as Kara says, when you say CrossFit, they quite often imagine that you're standing on a cross trainer um, running away in the gym for hours, but they have no idea um, as to what actually goes on during a CrossFit class. So there is still a lot of work to do on that point. Yeah. That was my, that was my, that was my feeling. <laughs> um, okay, good guys. Uh, let's move on a little bit um, to the more elite side now and the sort of side of things where, where we're talking 
how doctors are doctors role within elite sports science and and the top end um i've got some things on my list here let's just uh let's start with injections um what are your roles i think Karis, you're the sort of conflicted one in this potentially because you'll you'll be the prescriber and the the, the receiver. I'm not sure Kerry and I are training enough to to need uh, to need injections at any points. But for sort of inflammation, your standard, you know, standard sort of. Uh, I know within other sports, I, I've got some experience within rugby and cricket, and and um, injections are are regular for pain reduction or. Uh, uh, recycling blood or not from the doping standpoint i'm talking from the tenderness uh, repair standpoint um are injections overused in sport as a general in general or is it something that's a good solution coming up to a competition or what's your experience as both from a professional and from an athletic side garris um to be honest it's not something that i've seen used a huge amount within crossfit um personally like within my gym I know a couple of people have had it for kind of bursitis and that kind of thing but um I don't know if it's that the kind of uh because CrossFit is a less established sport maybe there's uh like less knowledge about that side of things I don't know but um from my understanding, the evidence behind injections is quite mixed anyway. Um, so, yeah, it's not something that I've seen particularly overused in CrossFit, I don't think. Um, I don't know. I don't have experience in other sports, but, um, yeah, not, it's not something that I've seen very often. Yeah, I, mean, I think, for example, we, we, we do quite a bit within football, uh, and I think the, the uh, platelet-rich plasma injections which is the yeah the take the own patient's own <clears throat> or the player's own um own platelets and they inject into sort of the ligaments or tendons or muscles with the injury and and it's a it's almost like a take a scan see that there's some kind of inflammation do the injection and it's sort of done prior to not not in all cases, but in the majority of cases done prior to good rehabilitation or good physiotherapy. And and for, for where we stand off for Jouse and I, where we are, it's it's overused within football. Uh, but it's good to hear because, as you say, I don't see much of it within CrossFit. Um, but I feel we feel like it's overused within within the football or sort of the, I mean, quick story. When we were playing, when we were playing rugby back in the day, there was uh, players having epidurals before games just to, yeah, just so they couldn't feel anything and go out and destroy each other and uh, wonder why things were breaking. And um, it was a particular, as, as I understand, it was a particularly um, common thing with the South African national team was that they were having the sort of low back injections and going out and not being able to. So we've moved a long way from those days where, where when I was playing, it was something hurt. We, they banged uh, cortisone injection in and then you were just told to to carry on and we were sort of having needles hanging out of us pretty much all the time um, again not doping but uh, at the time it wasn't doping um, but yeah it's come, we've come a long way since those days um, Karis you're looking very surprised yeah I just don't know as a doctor how you would um, ethically do that before like 
give someone an epidural before they're about to go and play a rugby match. I would be surprised for someone to feel like that was an acceptable thing to do. I think the wasn't my intention that this should move down the um, down into the doping discussions, but um, but the uh, there is something now in the sporting world called ethical doping, um, and ethical doping is basically doping that a doctor said you're allowed to do with a therapeutic exemption. So, um, for example, the cycling world are are very 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 good at it. Uh, if you you know, as a, as a medical professional, if you scanned my body at any point, you would find disc prolapses, you would find inflammations, you would find injuries. And if I let you do uh, Fran into Kelly into one rep max snatch, and then I scanned your body, I would be able to find inflammation sites. I'd be able to find uh, bulges and all sorts of stuff. And I'd be able to find a justification to medicate you to a point where you had so much pain that you couldn't. You couldn't then uh, feel what you were doing, and and as a result of this, you have um, higher level uh, cyclists or triathletes or footballers or who are competing on doses of high doses of tramadol, um, and the same from the asthmatic uh, asthma side having exercise induced asthma. I genuinely believe in it. I think everybody does have it to a point but to the levels and the injections that the, these guys have been giving. And that's no different to how we were being giving was, was the epidurals back in the, in the late 90s. So, so unfortunately, Karis, I think you're one of the ethical ones there because I think there are a lot of doctors who are willing to, to, to as long as they're, they're ethically staying within the rules, sort of go down the doping, um, the doping route. I'm not sure why we ended up there, but let's talk about it. Um, Kerry, any thoughts on it? Because I think Karis has got lots, so we'll let you go first, and then we'll bring Karis in. But after, <laughs> uh, yeah, you, like there is a time and place for injections. Like I, I'll do them regularly, but you know, as as Karis says, like you have to have have your own sort of moral beliefs. Um, I, I don't agree with a lot of the things that you know you say have happened in the past, and um, it. Yeah, I don't. I don't understand how a doctor could give someone an epidural uh, to 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 have to mask pain and injury and then send them out onto a rugby pitch. Um, you know, I, I think as far as even just steroid injections goes, like they're they're great, but in the right person at the right time. So if they have inflammation, swelling, inflammatory arthritis, Baker cyst, that kind of thing, they're going to work really well. Um, I would tend to use them sparingly. So you know, if someone is you know, in pain, just pre-competition and there's absolutely nothing else that I could do. But I would rather use them to allow people to take part in their rehab and use them minimally um, and, and try and get people back together using just a, an exercise and rehab kind of approach rather than filling them full of, of injections. Karis, did you have any thoughts? Thoughts on doping or injections? Yeah. <laughs> uh, any, anything you feel like uh, sharing with us? But anything we've talked about in the last five minutes? <laughs> no, I think just as an athlete, um, the like doping side of things is even harder because when you are training really, really hard, the idea of someone else cheating to get the same effect is um, very difficult and it makes um, like it... it yeah, it, it makes it um, 
hard when you're you're putting your full effort in to feel like everyone else is not putting their full effort in and they're cheating so I think um it's like a fuzzy area when you're also competing as well as um kind of on the professional side of things I mean as doctors have you have you guys I mean this is something that this is something that I think is quite interesting is that you hear of these doping scandals or these doping examples and I've maybe I'm just naive but I've been working as a professional coach it's 21 years now I know you can't see it on me but it's 21 years now I've been uh, been coaching and I haven't once seen doping I haven't once met it I haven't once come across it uh, I've never met a doctor I've never been in a gym where someone's off me something now that might be just because I'm quite outwardly and open that it's not my style. It's not me, but I've never seen it. Have you guys ever been approached as doctors or had any kind of sort of sly comments or sort of people testing the water or have you seen any, any of it at all? Because it obviously it's out there and there's, there's a lot of people who are doping, but my, my feeling is it's not quite as easy as it's led to the popular press leaders to believe that you could just, that everyone's doping. That makes sense as a question. <laughs> Um, I mean, I think I'm probably quite vocal about uh, my opinions on doping. So I think that no one would approach me about it because I think I've made it quite clear what my opinions are on it. So, um, like, I think, I don't know, there's always rumours going around the gym, aren't there, about people who are and who aren't. And I think it probably is present in CrossFit competitions throughout um, different, like from the elite all the way down to the um, kind of weekend warrior. Um, but like you said, I don't think it's as as open and um, available as people might think it is. What are you thinking, Kerry? Yeah, I agree with Karis. Like I, I don't really see much evidence of it and certainly I've never been approached. Um, I just can't imagine as a doctor when you would make that decision to think that that's okay to do um, <laughs> and to cross those kind of lines. Um, so no, I, I haven't really had much experience of it. From, a, from a, <clears throat> I mean, the, the, line, the line is very blurred between the therapeutic exemption type of doping, what is classified as ethical doping through to illegal doping. There's, just, there's not a sort of direct line between between it, as we've discussed here, I think interestingly we discussed that there are doctors that are willing to push that therapeutic exemption right to the end, and there are doctors like yourselves who are who are only going to use uh, medical support as and when it's absolutely necessary. Um, and I think that's just just something to be to be aware of. For, for me, I think it's very often that <clears throat> doping, especially by the press, isn't necessarily understood. It's not just as easy as. <laughs> As, as as doping like there's a lot there's a lot of um there's a lot of finance there's a lot of hiding and a lot of uh i mean it's easier to be an alcoholic than dope <laughs> do you know what i mean it's easier to it's not an easy thing to hide from people around you and people close to you um so <coughs> so excuse me so i think the the only thing I would, i'm with you karis that we need to we do need to be strong and we need to have a strong voice against doping, especially as, as medical professionals that you are. But at the same time, I think calling someone out just because they match, max their snatch is also the wrong side of it. Um, I think there's a, 
there's a, a definitely a uh, an aggressive side of it that, of jealousy from from a lot of people that needs to be that needs to be watched. Um, so on, let's go back to where we started this conversation with injections um, and and leading that into injections and elective surgery and and stuff, guys. Is there's a lot of um, there's a lot of first question is on the on the injections is how many injections is too many into for example a shoulder joint or a knee joint ligament laxity is something that's discussed uh, often um you'll hear people and this is just really for clearing it up for the for the people out there who have had sort of shoulder pain for a long period of time i mean the first thing to do is go and see a red pill therapist of course uh, but after you've seen the red pill therapist uh you've had shoulder pain for a long period of time or you've had you've had that sort of nagging knee pain all the time is it okay to go and and the doctor says well we can we can inject that and take some of the inflammation away um is it okay to do that once is it is three injections and then it's surgery or do you guys have any sort of guidelines for just people listening in terms of i've had pain and the doctor's offered me offered me an injection what do i do um uh, kerry let's start start with you so there's no set rules as such but if i was injecting something after the second time i would be quite reluctant to do any more than that um there has been a couple of studies over the last few years. Um, one, you know, they don't work all the time. Um, actually, in some of the cases as well, people who have the steroid injections show worsening of osteoarthritic changes within the joints. You know, those changes progress quicker. There's a risk of uh, thinning the bone and osteonecrosis um, and sort of ligament and soft tissue damage as well. I think you have to be really careful about why you're injecting it um so like if you if you scan it and there's a big like bursitis there or something looks inflamed then a bit of steroid is probably going to help to settle that but if you're scanning a joint there's just a little bit of wear and tear there's nothing that looks actively inflamed you know is the pain coming from the tissue damage that's there or you know is the pain coming from something else we have this idea that pain equals tissue damage and injury but quite often there's more factors um, that contribute to the pain than just that. So I think, you, you know, you have to look at the person, look at the joint. Um, if you can physically see something within the joint that you feel will benefit from a steroid, then I might go ahead with it. Um, but I probably would be lim limiting that to two. Um, and if I don't see anything within the joint, I will try and come up with another management plan instead. Anything for you, that Carrie? Uh, yeah, it's just I would agree. Like every time you do a procedure, you're increasing the risk of getting side effects from that procedure. So every time you do an injection, the chances of getting one of the side effects that Kerry talked about is increased. And just if you're if you're needing to keep on injecting it, you're not identifying and fixing whatever the underlying cause is. So you need to look at what is causing the pain um, rather than just kind of keep on treating the symptoms um, you need to see what what the actual cause is and then you can try and treat that rather than just giving more injections so is it i mean I, i'm imagining you guys are i can hear you're sort of on the practical side of things but is that the same then with with when do we operate and when do we not operate i mean a lot of the research now is 
particularly within within knees, is that the, there's as much evidence not to operate as there is to operate. Um, and thankfully, we're coming further and further and further away from from um, <clears throat> from surgery. Um, is that a standpoint you guys are agreeing with? Is it a standpoint you're you're? Or what generally? What are your thoughts on? on elective surgery, particularly with knees and, and, and knees and knee sort of chronic knee injuries, arthritis being, being one, um, or sort of, can I say, sorry, not arthritis, um, cartilage changes and cartilage damage. Yeah. So as you said, there's lots of studies over the last few years. So it's not just knees. Those studies relate to shoulder operations, lumbar spine stabilizations, and really with a lot of them, there's no um, sort of benefit to the patients so they don't feel better pain-wise they have no better functional outcomes and um, then they would have either just with rehab and in some cases placebo surgeries or even just cognitive behavioral therapy as well so rushing to surgery is not always an answer and um, I don't like once again we're back to this pain and tissue damage are not always linked and um, so I think if you are considering surgery you should have a clear history of injury. Um, there should probably be functional impairment in the joint. So like in the knee, if it's a big meniscal tear, that's actually causing it to lock. So it's getting in the way of the way the joint moves. And there should be damaged tissue that the surgery aims to fix. I think in cases where you can't see anything, then going into the joint just to have a look about is probably not going to be all that helpful. So potentially you're talking about the what we would call the washout. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think there's been a couple of studies looking at sort of subacromial decompression, um, where basically they're just going into the shoulder joint to have a look around. If anything's there, they'll shave it off, fix it, um, and just decompress the joint. So tend, like, try and create a bit more space. But a lot of the time, they're not actually going in to fix anything. And really, the results from all of the studies that they have looked at show that there is no benefit to that operation. Do you, you share in that thought process, Karis? Yeah, I mean, it's something that Kerry knows a lot more about than I do, but um, it comes back to the kind of underlying point that she made that pain doesn't always equal tissue damage and tissue damage doesn't always equal pain. So uh, I can't remember the exact numbers, but studies in, um, they x-rayed um, asymptomatic people's hips. And I think it was something like 70% of adults over 50 had um, osteoarthritic changes in their hips, but asymptomatically um, and those changes were very similar to the patients who had symptoms so um, there must be something else some other factor which is making those patients with symptoms have symptoms um, so just fixing uh, what's going on in the joint might not be the answer so I think you need to think about the whole patient um, and not just look at imaging or um, kind of tests I think you need to think about your patient as a as a whole so does this come 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 back back to you Karis there but does this come all the way back round to then we talked about obesity as a pandemic but does this come all the way back round to being potentially exercise not not in an obesity standpoint but exercise being a greater solution to many problems um and and exercise could also be i mean i know i'm biased here so that's why i'm trying not to give an opinion but exercise being the solution to to not just uh, sort of uh, disease, but also to musculoskeletal trauma and injury and problems? Um, yeah, I think exercise and um, also 
I mean, there's a huge psychological um, component to pain. Um, a lot of what, so a lot of uh, pain clinics are often run by anaesthetists and they can give medications and injections and treatments, but also uh, you need to address the psychological aspect of um, why that person is in chronic pain. Um, and I don't think it's, it's not as simple as, oh, an operation will fix this. I think we need to um, kind of take a, a, whole, a whole patient as, um, view. Um, so it, whether that's lifestyle things, so if they're overweight, will losing weight help? Um, if they're anxious or depressed, will um, kind of cognitive behavioral therapy, like Kerry was saying, um, or counseling, will that help? Um, and then you can kind of, once you've uh, looked at those aspects, then you can go on to think about um, other things, medications, uh, treatments, that kind of thing. But I think you need to take that stepwise approach. I'm assuming you're agreeing with that, Kerry. Yeah, so like, there is really strong evidence over the last few years that exercise is good and safe for people who have arthritis and degenerative joints and that rest and not using the joint is probably the worst advice that we could give. Loading is going to stimulate the joint to produce cartilage. The more you rest it, you're going to speed up your cartilage loss. So like, there is studies in sort of recreational runners, novice marathon runners, um, showing that the knee changes actually improve after training. Um, so yeah, I just it still happens. Like so many people will go to their doctor, they have a sore knee, they get an X-ray, they're told they have a degenerative knee, and they're told not to load that joint. So like I saw a guy in his forties recently with uh, unilateral knee osteoarthritis. He was told not to walk or run with his dog, but to cycle instead. He should avoid lunges and squatting and avoid bearing weight on that side. And that's the guy in his early forties. So I have given him some different advice. <laughs> And a program that involves lots of lunges. <laughs> I was going to say, isn't lunges the answer to everything? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that. I mean, I think that we solve all medical medical um, dilemmas there with lunges, don't we? We're not sure what to do. Just give them some lunges. That's the uh, that's the the answer to everything, right? Um, okay, guys, wonderful. I think we've. Um, We've been through. We've been through my list. I think as we've gone through, if I don't know if you, you guys have, have got time to come on again and do another podcast with us. I think as we've gone through, I've had four or five questions pop up, which I knew if I started with, we wouldn't uh, we wouldn't finish today. But particularly on on the pain side of things, and I think uh, if you guys had time to do another podcast at some point and dive a little bit into in through the different types of pain, because of course there's there's pain where you are injured pain but there's also pain that you're suffering through a workout and are, are they the same things and what is the physiological differences and psychological differences and i think that's will hopefully take us an hour or so so um we've hit our sort of hour mark so um we'll, we'll say thanks for today and then um, if you guys have got the time we'll, we'll come back at uh, at another point so uh, thanks very much uh Karis, carrie appreciate your time thanks thank you me. red pills mentorship is an intense 12-month syllabus where you'll go deep down the rabbit hole, supported by Phil Mansfield and James Jowsey. It's a mixture of structured modules and live days where you'll get to share and discuss topics while putting the knowledge gained through the module into practice. This is the perfect opportunity to go to the next level as a coach, trainer or therapist. For more information, head to our website or contact us at hello at redpilltraining.com.